all the people that you could announce the birth of a king to, why shepherds? Uh, and I have to think that perhaps God fills a certain camaraderie with shepherds. The Bible talks a great deal about uh, the people of God being something like livestock, sheep being the most common metaphor. And of course, we know Jesus to be the good shepherd. And uh, uh, we, often, uh, we often depict Jesus in uh, paintings and such, having a, a lamb with him. Uh, maybe carried over his shoulder. So there is this sort of uh, notion about sheep and shepherd of sort of uh, God providing us with tender loving care, and that's, that's probably part of that. In Matthew 9, we're told that Jesus looks out on a crowd of people that have come to see him, and he has compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. I, uh, I like to think that my, my interest in gardening and raising small livestock has uh, aided me at, from time to time in my preparation for various sermons, and that is because the Bible tends to be quite agrarian and uses all of these, uh, these things as, as metaphors and examples, and, and so uh, living with these animals, I... I uh, maybe uh, have some insight from time to time into what, what they mean. We are waiting. We have two female goats right now that are, that are pregnant. We're waiting for them to kid. The joke around our household is uh, next deep freeze, that's probably when they'll come because uh, our goats have been infamous for this. Whenever it's brutally cold out, that's when they decide to go into labor and we get kids that we have to protect from the cold. That is uh, uh, humorous. We hope that's not true this time around, but it has often been the case. And we look forward to these events with great enthusiasm, great joy, and it's a, it's a wonderful thing to see these kids come into the world. They're beautiful and cute and, and fun to hold. Also, at this moment, I have two goes that are clearly, clearly uncomfortable. They're about as wide as they are tall, and that's just part of what makes them very uncomfortable right now. And the more uncomfortable they are, the more difficult they are. I made the mistake of feeling sorry for them and giving them some sweet feed, which any of you have had livestock before, you give sweet feed. It's not just like regular feed. It's, it's like crack. All right? So... You give them some sweet feed, and they remember it forever. And so now, every time I come outside, I have goats screaming at me, gathered around me, underfoot, screaming at me to give them some more. It's a give and take. There's things that I love about having them. My chickens, the same way. I have all of these. I have, I have this enormous number of chickens right now. They are black Australorps, my favorite breed. They're beautiful, all-black chicken with a green sheen to their feathers. I think they're just gorgeous. I'm fascinated by them. They're fun to watch. Also, incredibly irritating. Always underfoot, always gathered around, always thinking that I am literally made of feed and that at any moment I might burst open at, like a pinata and they'll be able to eat. It's fascinating 
These animals are funny and they're beautiful and they're needy and they're demanding and they're selfish and they're obnoxious. And the only reasonable conclusion that I can come to when Jesus uses these livestock metaphors for us is that he intends both of these understandings. That people are, in fact, unique and wonderful reflections of God's image. Each of us are an exceptional blend of qualities, of personality, of capacity, of ability, of virtue, of beauty, of intelligence, of, of experience, and a unique story that's worthy of being heard. That, in essence, because of our creation in the image of God, we are worthy of being loved. And we can see on each person the imprint of God if we only take the time to look for it. At the same time, people are toxic and terrible reflections of their own sinful nature. Each one a selfish, sniveling, whining, self-serving, self-righteous collection of personal flaws, sins, and unholy desires. Thoroughly unlovable. And it's not a question of which one of these things is true. Because basically both suppositions are correct. At this very moment, even now, you and I are some mixture of the image of God in which we were created and the image of brokenness that has been imposed upon us by sin, by our sin and the sins of others. We, we have a tendency to want to divide everybody up into heroes and villains and the people that we like, the people that we admire, they're all the heroes and they can do no wrong and, and the people that we don't care so much for, they're the villains and they're never right. And we include ourselves in that. We, we like to paint ourselves most of the time as the heroes in our own story. But ultimately, there's no real point to not seeing both sides, to not seeing that we are both. More to the point, our mission as a church demands that we see both. There's a popular notion in Christianity today that we just need to love people and we don't need to notice, we don't need to see their sin. Indeed, the culture demands of us that we not only ignore sin, but that we endorse and celebrate it. But this doesn't work. It doesn't work. Ministry is seeing the inherent beauty in each soul, while at the same time proposing to heal the disfigurement of sin. It is both those things, and that requires us to see each other with honest, godly eyes. People are, we are, both beautiful and broken simultaneously. And it's not merely a matter of seeking forgiveness for breaking some arbitrary rules that God made that's going to rescue us from death. It's, it's understandable that that would be our focus much of the time because death is the ultimate offense against life. And so we all want to solve that problem. It's understandable that that, that life and death battle becomes central to our understanding of the gospel. But that's not all the gospel is about. The gospel is also about all the wounds that we've accumulated, all the scar tissue 
that we have built up, all the ugly disfigurement that sin has brought about in our lives and the lives of people that we love. Paul says in Ephesians 2, starting at the beginning of the chapter, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were, by nature, deserving of wrath. Paul doesn't say you would have died in your sins. He says you were already dead in your sins because you followed this world and its ruler who is the enemy of God and the enemy of God's order because you were gratifying the flesh, whatever the flesh craves, whatever it desires, whatever it thinks, that becomes our idol, which is a pretty great description of where we find ourselves culturally in this moment. The ultimately, Paul says, we are deserving of judgment for this. We are deserving of God's wrath. But in the interim, we have basically brought down wrath upon ourselves. We have basically created the means for our own self-destruction. We are imposing judgment upon ourselves. Because like swimming with piranhas, living in sin, living in the world, is constantly marring us, constantly biting at us, constantly damaging and wounding us. Except that we are so familiar with this damage, so covered with the scar tissue from this damage, so numb that we don't even recognize it as brokenness much of the time. We exist in this space that is actively doing damage to us and we think that we're really living. Christians try to live sometimes in the name of Jesus while serving the same old masters that they've always served. It doesn't work. The lost around us sometimes cannot fathom, cannot imagine what it would even look like to live otherwise. They have no experience with anything that isn't broken, that isn't damaging. And here is the context of our mission. This is the cultural context in which we need to go to work. We are promising life to those who imagine they are already living. They are distracted by their woundedness, and they have scar tissue that has left them numb to the truth. What does Jesus do about this? Jesus in this initiates his mission in the context of people awaiting the Messiah. The Jews are the first recipients of the gospel, spiritually speaking, because they're God's chosen people and because they've been a part of this narrative all along. But they are first, strategically speaking, 
because they are already primed to receive a Savior. The Jews all of this time have been awaiting this new messianic king who's going to bring justice and redemption and forgiveness and truth and peace and the spirit and hope and freedom and life and meaning and a new covenant and an ultimate reconciliation with God. And given all of this history, all that you should have to say as Jesus to the Jewish people is, I'm here. But it wasn't enough. Matthew 13 says, uh, coming to his hometown, he began teaching the people in their synagogue, and they were amazed. Where did this man get this wisdom and these miraculous powers, they asked. Isn't this the carpenter's son? Isn't his mother's name Mary? And aren't his brothers James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas? Aren't all his sisters with us? Where did this man get all of these things? And they took offense at him. But Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his own town and in his own home. And he did not do many miracles there because of their lack of faith. Now, let's just look at that for a minute. Jesus is ministering in a context in which everyone is waiting for him to arrive. But even there, the mission is effectively limited by expectation. They're all waiting for him to show up, but when he shows up, he's not what they expect him to be. And so they resent him. They reject him. John 1, John says, the true light came into the world, the world that he created, and the world did not recognize him. Why? How is it that people who are so primed to receive Jesus can reject him as callously as they did? Well, because people are unique and wonderful and toxic and terrible. And in this case, they are guided by their expectations rather than being guided by their faith. And their expectations, mind you, are rooted in their fallen nature. They are rooted in their personal experience in a fallen and broken world, a world which is run by the enemy of God. This is always the case. It was the case then, it's the case now. The church today, when we talk about discipleship and mission, the church should be primed to hear the message of discipleship. Primed to engage the mission of Jesus Christ. But often it doesn't meet with our expectations, and so we greet it with resentment. The world, broken and messed up as it is right now, should be primed for the healing that Jesus Christ offers. But instead, it chooses to wallow in its brokenness. What are we going to do? And what would Jesus do? And this brings us to mission strategy Number two, cultivate a community of disciples. This is more than just a teaching strategy for Jesus. It's more than incidental to the mission. At each step of his ministry, Jesus demonstrates that calling, gathering, teaching, mentoring, modeling, forming, and leading the twelve in accordance with his purpose is 
his primary purpose. It is very intentional, not only in the way that he calls them, but in the way that he forms them into a community. And why is that so critical? Well, because the purpose of this community is to live in the truth of Jesus. To occupy that space. Now, there are two instances in the Gospel of John where Jesus is extremely clear about what the evidence of genuine discipleship is. In John 8, he says, if you obey my teaching, you're my disciple. And you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Oddly enough, the people to whom those words were spoken immediately rejected that message and said, we, we're not slaves to anyone, we're already free. In John 13, Jesus says, people will know that you're mine, they will know that you're my disciples because of your love for one another. What we have is a community of disciples witnessed by their obedience to Christ and by their love. You see, people are immersed in their nature. They are enraptured by their own woundedness. They are numb by their scars. And so oftentimes when freedom and healing arrive, that potential is met with distrust and resentment. And it's not enough, even for Jesus Christ himself, it was not enough to unlock the mysteries of Scripture, to speak the truth, or even to perform miracles in the presence of people. It is not enough. And so Jesus forms a community, a community of people who live in the earth-shattering, countercultural truth of his teaching a people to be in the world, but not of the world. People who take a path so different, who serve a Messiah, who's so unexpected, who reject this common life of navel-gazing, who give their whole lives, their whole selves, in order to follow Jesus, who are known and recognized by their obedience to Jesus and their love for each other. And that ultimately is the meaning and purpose of the church, or at least that's what it's meant to be. During his ministry, Jesus was very often surrounded by hundreds, sometimes thousands of people who were interested in what he has to say. He teaches these people. He heals them. He performs miracles among them. But he doesn't build his ministry Jesus calls the twelve. And there are others who come along, but, but the twelve remain the basis, the focus of his ministry. Among those twelve, there's three that he's closest to. Peter, James, and John. In Luke 9, Jesus sends out the twelve into the towns and villages ahead of him. In Luke 10, he sends out 72 disciples out into the towns and villages ahead of him. Paul tells us 
that after his resurrection, Jesus appeared to 500 disciples. What exactly is happening here? Jesus is one among three, his inner circle. Those three work among 12. It's a one to three ratio in both cases. Those 12 somehow become 72. That's a one to six ratio. Those 72 become 500. That's a one to six ratio. And then we're told that on the day of Pentecost, that 500 becomes 3,000. That's a one to six ratio. What is happening except that disciples are making disciples are making disciples? The end of Acts 2 says something really remarkable. The Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. All driven by disciples making disciples. It's important for us to note that there's more growth in the faith that happens after Jesus' ministry, after he ascends to heaven and leaves the twelve in charge. There's more growth more commitment to Christ after that point than there was during his three years of ministry. Jesus himself said, you're going to go on to do greater things than I have done because I'm leaving you and I'm sending my spirit. Jesus' ministry is effective, but what seems to fire the imagination of the people of the ancient world is the true church. Now, it is admittedly an imperfect journey. We read through the rest of the New Testament, the the true church seems to miss the mark an awful lot. We're still human, after all. And if obedience and love are to be the mark of our discipleship, well, we need to note that obedience and love run, run somewhat contrary to our human nature. When, however, by the grace of God, The church lives up to its divine potential. Something absolutely extraordinary can occur. Because, see, most people, rooted as we are in the world, in our experience, in our woundedness, have a startling lack of imagination for the kingdom. We need to see it before we'll be able to comprehend it. I know that was true for me. I'm betting it's true for you. As we look at this ministry, as the mission expands, this community becomes even more vital. I want to consider this. Unlike the Jews, when Christianity begins to spread into Gentile culture, the Gentiles are not at all primed to receive a Savior, to receive the Messiah. They lack the traditions, they lack the training, they lack the wisdom of the ancient faith. And there are plenty of pagan gods and pagan traditions that they can observe in the name of faith and religion. And they're hardly inclined to believe that their hope for life lies in a crucified rabbi, a leader of some ragtag bunch of sectarians, from the backwaters of Judea. And to make matters worse, 
These Christians face rejection by the synagogues and periodic persecution by the Roman government. And yet, based on the witness of this community of believers, living by a completely different standard, following this very unexpected Messiah, the church, in this context, in a little over 200 years, grows from 3,000 members to somewhere around 3 million members. This brings us to mission principle number seven. And mission is amplified in fellowship. What one of us can do for the kingdom is nothing compared to what all of us can do for the kingdom. And once again, the church finds itself on a mission field where the truth is a foreign concept, where self-worship is the norm, where sin is celebrated, and where people's appetite is their God. Most people around us are so broken, so scarred, so wounded, so enslaved that they've never known anything else. And in this same context, the church is dismissed as irrelevant, even though in its truest form, it is more important than ever. And I don't mean the comfortable, rudderless, self-serving churches that we so often experience in our modern day. I mean the missional, transformative, sold out, living for truth, living for Jesus' church, a living witness to the kingdom, exemplified by their love and their obedience. See, the true church is united by nothing less than the authority of Jesus Christ. It matters why we're here. It matters who we follow. We cannot be the church that we are called to be by meeting human expectations. The expectation of culture is that we will bow to the gods of self, that we will adopt the new secular morality. The expectation of tradition is that we will bow to the whims of our members. Look, folks, the unity of the fellowship is critical. It enables the mission. It enables us to be a living witness in that mission. But that unity cannot be rooted in anything except Jesus Christ and his mission. The church in our time has sadly accepted far less than this and has often compromised the truth in order to accommodate self-centered expectations. We must serve not only a common purpose, but a common divine purpose. We must be united in our follow of Jesus Christ. And the journey will still be imperfect. The journey will still be messy. We, we are sheep. And we are unique and wonderful and we are toxic and we are terrible. But we are also healing. Healing as we choose to live in the truth of Jesus. I studied as a family therapist, and I can't tell you how often that, uh, that study has been useful in my work in ministry, not just because there are families within the church 
that uh, are often struggling, but because the true church itself is a dysfunctional family in transformative therapy. It's not just the witness of who we are in this moment. It is the witness of where we've come from, and it is the witness of where Christ is taking us next. This is what shines before the world. We grow in obedience and our love to Jesus. We will also grow in our love for one another. Now, what we create can always be ignored by the world. What Jesus creates in us, you will not be able to deny. So we close today. That would be appropriate to close with the first two of what I've labeled mission priorities. These are reasons that Jesus himself gave for his ministry, for his mission. Reasons that must, if we're going to be followers of his, inform our own ministry and mission. And it just happens that the first two of these priorities also speak to the priority of obedience and love. Mission priority number one, do the will of the Father. Jesus said, I have come not to do my own will, but to do the will of the Father. As a matter of fact, in terms of Christian unity, he says at one point, who is my family? Who is my mother? Who are my brothers? But those that do the will of my Father. That is the basis of Christian unity. And mission priority number two, Jesus said, I have come to seek and save the lost. Here's the thing. When we serve these priorities, we are effectively allowing Jesus to shape our entire fellowship. He will fashion us into a countercultural witness, a people who live for him. While most churches in our country today are trying to imagine what it will look like to survive into the next decade, I have to wonder if we're not meant to be imagining something completely different. Would it be so bold for us to imagine the Lord adding to his church daily those who are being saved? I know it's too bold for me. It's not too bold for Christ.